You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. We are going to be studying Romans. We're in our study. We've been doing a verse-by-verse study of the book of Romans that we call Saving Grace. And now we have come all the way up to chapter 9. So this morning we're going to be in Romans chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, please open with me to Romans chapter 9. Let's begin by reading our text, which comes from Romans chapter 9. We'll read some verses. We'll start with the first eight verses, and then we'll go down to verse 14. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption and the glory and the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And we pray that as we study it this morning, Lord, would you give us insight that we might understand it, Lord, that you might open the eyes of our heart to understand these glorious things in your word. Lord, I pray that uh, for some of us who've come in here with questions, Lord, that you would answer some of those questions today. And I pray for those of us who have come in here with other needs, Lord, that you would speak to us, meet our needs. Lord, you know where each of us are at. We ask that you'd speak to us and that we'd have ears to hear. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So how many times have you heard somebody protest with these words? They say, that's not fair. I have kids. And if you have kids, then you probably hear that a lot, right? Like I hear my kids talking to each other and I always hear them in the other room. And then one of them saying to the other one, that's not fair. So we all have this this innate sense that there should be fairness. There should be rightness in the world. And and if your parents were anything like my parents, and then of course I do this to my kids, when they say, that's not fair, I like to tell them, well, life's not fair, so get used to it, because that's what my parents told me. Now, while that's true, that life's not fair, it's not very satisfying to get that response, is it? Because all of us, we have this innate desire for things to be fair, for them to be right, for them to be equitable. And so, although it's true that the world isn't fair, it's not very satisfying to get that answer. Now, sometimes people bring that discussion, that question, that idea into their understanding of God, and they'll look at their lives and the circumstances of their lives or look at things going on in the world, and they'll look at them and they'll say, it's not fair. They'll go one step further. They won't even just say, my circumstances aren't fair or the world or life is not fair. They'll go to that further step of saying, well, if God's in control of everything, well, then God isn't fair. And, and maybe you found yourself in that place before too, questioning God, wondering, is God fair? Or, or even just straight out saying, God isn't fair. Maybe you found yourself asking other questions like, are the things that the Bible says, are they even true? Do they even hold up under scrutiny? Here in Romans 9, Paul is addressing some of the most difficult questions that people struggle with when it comes to God. And he addresses them head on. He doesn't avoid them at all. He addresses them directly. It's, it's stuff like, 
what was that whole thing with, with Israel in the Old Testament? Like, what's up with having a chosen nation that you treat differently than you treat other people? And questions like, if God chooses some people, then doesn't that by implication mean that God doesn't choose all people? Or if God is in control of everything, then how much freedom do we actually have, right? Like, if God is sovereign and he's in control of all things, then how much freedom do we have and how much responsibility do we have for our own actions if God is really in control? So the title of today's message is Chosen by God. And this is the first part of a three-part kind of mini-series within our series that we're gonna do because that's, that's really what we have here. Verses 9, 10, and 11 deal with the question of Israel. And each chapter kind of deals with it from a little bit different angle. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at chapters 9, 10, and 11 as we journey through Romans. And the key to understanding this section is it's all about understanding Israel. So think about it like that. Understanding Israel. And today our message is about Israel as God's chosen people, what does it mean for us that Israel was chosen? What does it mean for us that we're chosen? How do we understand this whole idea of God choosing? So we left off last week in chapter 8, reading about how we have this incredible security in Christ. It was this great crescendo that Paul reaches where he, he's been building up to this thing where he says we have complete assurance and security in Jesus because of the gospel, because God has chosen us, he's placed his love on us, he has made these promises to us, is not going to let go. In fact, if you are his, then he's going to see you through and you can be absolutely sure about it. And that's so encouraging. We talked about it last week, we got so much feedback, people coming and saying, you know, that was just so encouraging. But here's the other part of that. It brings up a lot of questions, doesn't it? It, it does bring up a lot of questions. For example, all this thing about election and predestination, if God chooses people to be recipients of his grace, clearly that's what it says. And that's nice if you're on the receiving end of it. But is it really fair is the question that people ask. Because by saying that God chose some people, doesn't that mean by implication that there are other people that he didn't choose? Or someone might read this and they might say, well, I'm not a Christian, so are you trying to say that God has not chosen me? See, there's another question too, and it's this whole question about the Jewish people. The Old Testament seems to be all about how the Jews are God's chosen people. But now it kind of seems like that's maybe not the case and God is into Christians and not Jews now. And, and what, what's that all about? Like, did God change his mind? And if he changed his mind about them, does that mean that he might change his mind about me? Those are really important questions. And Paul is going to spend the next three chapters delving into these questions and helping us to understand Israel and understand how all this stuff pertains to us. So over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at these chapters and hopefully it'll bring some clarity to some areas where maybe there's been confusion in the past. Today's message, again, is called Understanding Israel, Part 1, Chosen by God. And here in Romans 9, here's what we're going to see. Here's a little outline for you. First of all, we're going to talk about God's heart for lost people. God's heart for lost people. Secondly, we're going to talk about some honest questions about God. Some honest questions about God. And thirdly, why God is beyond fair and worthy of worship. So why God is beyond fair and worthy of our worship. So let's begin by talking about God's heart for lost people. Notice how Paul begins this section in verses 1 and 2. He says he is having great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. Now, what a contrast that is from where we left off in chapter 8, right? Like in chapter 8, where we left off, Paul was triumphant. He was hopeful. He was full of joy. And now we, we go to the very next verse here in chapter 9, and all of a sudden now Paul is distressed and upset and sad. What is 
Paul so upset about, especially after all the great things that he talked about in Romans chapter 8. Now we come to Romans 9. What could have him so upset? Well, he tells us in verse 3. He says, For I wish that I myself could be accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. See, even though Paul is confident and rejoicing in his own salvation— At the same time, he is heartbroken and sorrowful over the fact that his countrymen, the Jewish people, have in large part rejected Jesus. Now, don't be confused and think that all Jewish people rejected Jesus. That's certainly not the case. The book of Acts tells us the story of the earliest days of Christianity and tells us that in those days, so many Jewish people were coming to faith in Jesus and embracing him as their Messiah. One of my favorite verses is in Acts chapter 6, where it says that, many of the priests were becoming Christians. And I figure if anybody amongst the Jews should have become a Christian and received Jesus as a Messiah, it should have been the priests because they were the ones really in the weeds of Judaism. They knew the stuff better than anybody. So that encourages me when I see that a lot of the priests were converting to Christianity or or accepting Jesus. It encourages me that, that I must be on the right track too. But the point is the book of Acts tells us that very many people were receiving Jesus amongst the Jews. So it's not that all Jewish people had rejected Jesus. Paul himself is Jewish and he put his faith in Jesus. But at the same time, there were a lot of Jewish people who didn't. And there are a lot of people, Jewish people today, who don't receive Jesus as Messiah, the the Savior sent by God. And this broke Paul's heart to see this. It broke Paul's heart that many of his own people, you know, his family members, his people, that they were not going to be saved because they were rejecting the salvation that God had sent them. And he says this radical statement there in verse 3. He says, I wish that I could just trade spots with them. Like, I wish that I could give up my salvation. I would be willing to go to hell for eternity if, if somehow that would make it possible for them to be saved. And that strikes me as That's incredible. And and think about this. Not only is it incredible that someone would do that for anybody, but it's incredible that he would do that for these people in particular. Think about how the Jewish people had treated Paul. See, Paul became a Christian. He had been kind of a higher up in Judaism. He becomes a Christian. And then what do they do? They, They try to assassinate him. They try to kill him. Maybe you remember the story. There was a time where he had to be lowered down in a basket from a rope from a city wall in Damascus because people are trying to kill him. Right? These are the people who tracked him down, beat him up, followed him from city to city and harassed him. They lied about him. They slandered him. They spread rumors about him. They later on got him put in jail. Right? These people. And Paul says, I love those guys. How do you love people who do that to you? How do you have that kind of love? How do you have that kind of heart? Well, here's how. It's the heart of Jesus. Right? Jesus, as he hangs on the cross, he's praying for the people who just whipped him and beat him and nailed him to a tree. He says, Father... Forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing, right? It's the heart of Jesus who gave up his life as a ransom for ours. He took on the curse so that we could receive the blessing. He took on the curse of our sin and death so that we could receive the blessings of forgiveness and eternal life and redemption and grace and a relationship with God. He was blotted out so that our names could be written into the book of life. And when you really understand that that is how God has loved you and that is what God has done for you, it changes how you think about other people, especially those people who you tend to think of as your enemies. Because if God loved you when you were an enemy of his, then how should you then relate to those who are enemies of yours? And what happens is as you begin to love your enemies, as you begin to pray for those who persecute you, you know what happens? 
pretty soon, at least in your mind, they cease to be enemies. They might still think of you that way, but you begin to develop this love for them as you pray for them and as you bless them. That's the, that's the effect, that's the dynamic of loving and blessing and praying for someone is that they cease to be your enemy. You begin to see them and have this love in your heart for them like Paul did for the Jewish people. He didn't see them as enemies. He saw them as people he dearly loved in spite of everything they had done to him. And that's what happens. The more you realize, the more you, you stew in the fact that of what Jesus has done for you, the more you come to share God's heart for lost people. Paul says an interesting thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says there in uh, 2 Corinthians 5.16, he says, From now on, we make it our goal to no longer see anyone or view anyone according to the flesh. We make it our goal to no longer view anyone according to the flesh. What he's saying is this. I want to see people not the way that the world sees them or the world identifies them or what the labels that the world calls them. I want to see people the way that God sees people. I want to think about people and feel about people the way that God thinks and feels about people. And truly what Paul says here in verse 3, this is the heart of God towards lost people. If only I could trade places with them. If only I could be accursed so that they could be saved. That is something that, that Paul wished he could do, but ultimately he couldn't. But it is exactly what Jesus did for us. And so I want to encourage you to ask God to help you to do the same thing, to see people the way that he sees them. Ask God to give you his heart for other people, for lost people, even people who you might consider enemies. Secondly, let's talk about this. Some honest questions about God. And this is really the, the biggest chunk here. Some honest questions about God. In verse 4, uh, starting in verse 4, Paul reminds us of some of the promises and privileges that the Jewish people uniquely had as God's chosen people. And he lists eight specific things. He says, they are the Israelites. To them belong the adoption the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, to them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. In other words, the Jewish people had an incredible head start on everybody else when it came to knowing God, when it came to receiving the Messiah, the Savior that God had promised and brought into the world. God revealed himself to these people. He chose them, right? He had a special relationship with them. And when the Messiah came, he came to them. He walked their streets. He visited their towns. He spoke their language. If anybody should have received the Messiah, it should have been them. And yet there were so many who didn't. And now we come to the New Testament and it seems that whereas in the Old Testament, God was really into the Jews. Now he seems to be really into the Christians and not so much into the Jews. And this brings up a lot of questions. And before we get into those questions, I want to show you something in verse five, kind of as a side note, but it's an important one. Notice what it says, how Paul describes Jesus. He says, he is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So this is one of the most simple and clearest statements in all of the Bible about Jesus being God. So if anybody ever asks you, hey, where in the Bible does it say that Jesus is God? This is a good place to bring them and show them. Romans chapter 9 verse 5, because it states very simply, very quick, clearly, there's really no way around it. It is stating that Jesus Christ is God. Now, maybe you're here today, or maybe you know people, and, and they would say, you know, I admire Jesus as a great teacher, as a great example, as a historical figure, as a noble martyr. Uh, you know, sometimes I even ask myself, what would Jesus do in this situation? And that's good, but it is important that you understand who Jesus was. And this makes it very clear, straightforward, black and white. Jesus was God come to earth to save us. 
So that brings us to our first honest question, which we, we see there in verse six. It's addressed in verse six. On this topic of election and all these things, it says this. Here's the question. Has God's word failed? Has God's word failed? Right, so in the Old Testament, God told the Jewish people, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. That isn't a promise that he just made to people in general. That's a promise he made to the Jewish nation when they were in exile. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will always be faithful to you and I will come to you and I will save you and I will bring you into my kingdom forever. But now in the New Testament, those promises are now applied to only those who believe in Jesus and they belong to anyone who believes in Jesus, whether they're Jewish or not. It's really easy to look at that and be like, wow, did God change his mind? Like, did God say one thing in the Old Testament? Now in the New Testament, he's saying something completely different. Like in other words, did God's word fail? Like all that stuff in the Old Testament was, was plan A, but then plan A didn't work out. So God tried to like sneak in plan B as if we wouldn't notice that something happened there. But we're like, hey, we noticed. And, and so Paul's answer to that question, verse six, is this. Has God's word failed? No, not even close, by no means. And notice what he says. God keeps his promises. If God's word says something, you can trust it. But the question is still, what about the Jews? Like, if, did God's word fail Israel? And if it didn't, then why is it that not all of them are saved? And Paul gives the answer to that in the second half of verse 6, where he says this, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That sounds kind of like a, a riddle there, but this is interesting. It's a very important distinction when it comes to understanding the big picture of the Bible and everything that it says about Israel and Israel's place and, and all of the stuff that God says. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. It kind of sounds uh, like a riddle, but it's not that hard to understand if you consider what the meaning of the name or the word Israel is. So the word Israel, among other things, it literally means governed by God or ruled by God. Right? That's what the name means, and that's what their identity was as a nation. They were to be a people who was governed by God and ruled by God. And what Paul is doing here with this phrase that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, it's a kind of a play on words, or you could say that he's, he's making a play on the meaning of the word Israel. And what he's saying is essentially this. Not everyone who is ethnically Jewish is governed by God. Not everyone who is ethnically Jewish is governed by God. Now, this is kind of like, let's put it in these terms. We would say not everyone who's a Christian is really a Christian. In other words, not everybody who calls himself a Christian, not everybody who self-identifies as a Christian is truly a Christian. Now, maybe you say, wait a second, what do you mean? Well, that's actually exactly what Jesus himself taught, that not everybody who thinks of themselves as a Christian is truly a Christian. Not everybody who, who goes to church is a Christian just because they go to church. Now, maybe you're surprised by that, and you say, hey, I don't know. I, I think that sounds... I don't know. I'm kind of offended that you would even say that. Like, how, who are you to judge whether or not somebody's a Christian? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm not anybody to judge whether somebody's a Christian. That's between them and God. But I'll just say this. If you're offended by that, then know this. I was offended by it too the first time I remember somebody said that to me. And I'll tell you the story. I was in high school, and, and let's put it this way. I was not exactly what you might say, pursuing righteousness, okay? Like, I wasn't uh, pursuing holiness with my whole being. Let's put it that way. Like, I was kind of the opposite of an accountability partner. Like, you know what an accountability partner is? Like, that person who says to you, hey, this is sin. 
Let's not do it. I was kind of like the opposite of that. I was kind of like, hey, this is sin. Let's do it twice, right? And so as I was living that way, there was this girl that I would drive to school every day, and we were friends, and she lived in my neighborhood. And I knew she was a Christian and, uh, and that she went to church. And one day we're talking in the car, and just kind of like as a side note, she says to me, well, that's because I'm a Christian and you're not. And I'm like, wait a second. Like, who do you think you are? Like, where do you get off telling me that I'm not a Christian? Like, I'm totally a Christian. Like, I'm a super Christian. I'm, I'm, the, I'm way into being a Christian, right? Like, I explained to her, I went to Lutheran school. Like, I got baptized. I went through confirmation. I memorized a lot of stuff, right? Like, I'm like Nacho Libre, like, you all think that I don't know a bunch of stuff about the gospel, but I do. And so I remember I was just so offended by her, like, how, who, who do you think you are? How can you say that I'm not a Christian? You don't know me. Like, I'm totally a Christian. I'm a big-time Christian, huge Christian. And she said to me, okay, well, well, tell me this. What's a Christian? Let's define it. And I said, well, it's somebody who, who believes in Jesus and the Bible and all that stuff. And she said, well, well, doesn't Satan kind of believe in all those things too? I mean, is he a big-time Christian too, you think? And I was like, well, no, obviously. And she said, well, well, then isn't a Christian really somebody who not only believes that those things are true, like in theory, but actually also follows Jesus? Like, isn't that what it means to be a disciple? It means that you follow Jesus? And I was like, well, yeah, I guess that's what it means. And she said, well, are you following Jesus? And, and she knew me well enough that I couldn't get away with lying, right? So I said, you know, well, I guess not. Now, someone the other day came up to me and they said, you know, I self-identify as a Christian. Well, that's great. But not everyone who self-identifies as a Christian is actually a Christian. Just like not everyone who is descended from uh, Israel is part of Israel, is governed by God. Right? There are lots of people who equate Christianity with their nationality. Like, of course, I'm Christian, I'm Irish, or I'm German, or, or whatever it might be. You know, what Paul's saying is, look, not everybody who's descended from Israel is Israel. Not every person who is ethnically Jewish is governed by God. Not every person who's descended from Abraham is part of God's chosen people. And you might say, wait a second, I don't know. Does this really, what you're saying, does this really hold up? Like, are you just making this up? No, here's what he says. He says, not only is it that not every person who's ethnically descended from Abraham is truly part of Israel— the true Israel of God, but also there are many people who are not descended from Abraham ethnically who have been grafted in to God's chosen people. Now, in order to prove his point that this isn't just something he's making up, what he does next is he gives three examples from the Old Testament to prove his point and to show that this is indeed the case. His first example is found in verses 7 and 8. We read it earlier, and it is about Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac and Ishmael. Abraham had two sons, his first son was Ishmael. His second son was Isaac. Both of those sons were descended from Abraham, but only one of them was a child of the promise. Only one of them became part of the nation that God was building, this chosen people, and that was Isaac, right? And so Isaac became part of God's chosen people, and Ishmael didn't, even though both of them were descended from Abraham. His second example is in verse 10, Jacob and Esau. Now, with, with the first example, you might have said, okay, well, in, with Isaac and Ishmael, it's because they had two different mothers, and that's why. Well, in the second example, these kids have the same mother. They're both from Rebekah, right? So Isaac has two kids, Jacob and Esau. Abraham's two sons had two sons. Now Isaac has two sons, and even though both these sons are de descended from Abraham, only one of them becomes part of God's chosen people. Esau, even though he's descended from Abraham, doesn't become part of Israel, 
Now, now here's what it says in verse 10. I'll, I'll read this to you. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it's written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So the point here is this, the fact that not all Jewish people believe in Jesus and not all Jewish people are saved, that doesn't mean that God's word or God's promise to the Jewish people has failed. See, what you have to understand is that not every person who is of Jewish descent is part of the true Israel, the chosen people of God. And as we're going to see later on, there are other people who have been grafted into the chosen people of God who are not ethnically descended from Israel. So, God's word hasn't failed at all. That's the answer to our first question. This brings us to our second honest question, which is, honest question, isn't it unfair of God to choose people? Is it unfair of God to choose people? Paul says in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is it unfair of God to choose some people and not choose every person? Now, let me point out something to you here in verse 11. Paul uses this phrase, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. He says that's why he chose Jacob. That's why he chose Isaac. So when it came to Isaac and Ishmael, when it came to Jacob and Esau, God's purpose, God had a purpose and a plan in choosing the one and not choosing the other. And here's why that's important. Because a lot of people look at this and they say, so does that mean that God's just totally arbitrary? Like he just chooses people at random? like just kind of closes his eyes and points at people and he's eeny, meeny, miny, moe, kind of just totally arbitrary? No, no, God's not arbitrary. He has a purpose with why he chooses. That purpose is outside of us. It is within him. And he doesn't tell us what that purpose is, except that he says, I have a plan and I have a purpose. And maybe you say, oh, well, I know what, the, what it was. It was that Jacob was, was good, like he was a good person, a good-hearted person, and Esau was not. He was a bad-hearted person who didn't love God. Now, that's a great theory, except that this verse actually says that that is not what happened, right? And, and if you read Genesis, what you'll find is that it turns out that both of them were actually really bad people. So why did God choose Jacob, and why did God choose Esau? Well, it says there in verse 11, so that the purpose of God in election might continue not because of works, but because of him who calls. In other words, God didn't choose Jacob because of anything Jacob did. It was God's sovereign choice according to his plan and his purpose to include Jacob and his chosen people, the people of the promise. In other words, God chose, but his choosing is not arbitrary. It's not random. It's not eeny, meeny, miny, mo. He has his reasons, but they're reasons within himself, reasons that are not within us. And so what we learn here, though, and what, what's more important to take away from this is this. God has a plan. God has a purpose, and he's working it out. He had a plan for the world, and he had a plan for Jacob. And here's what I want you to know, that God has a plan for the world, and he also has a plan for you individually. And he's working that out. And you can find great comfort and great trust in that. And sometimes, like in this case here, it doesn't make sense to us. Sometimes he doesn't explain it to us. It's sometimes beyond our understanding how God's plan, what God's plan is and how he's working out and why things happen the way that they're happening. But you can be assured of this, that God has a plan and that it's a good plan and you can rest in knowing that. His phrase here in verse 13 is one that many people struggle with. Quoting from Malachi, he says this, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now it's important that we understand that when he says here, hated, 
He's not saying hated in the same way that like we think, oh, I hate that person's guts. There's a Hebrew idiom that we must understand here, a Hebrew phrase, a saying. And here's how we know that, because Jesus also used this similar phrase. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, then he cannot be my disciple. Now, in another place, Jesus says that we must love and respect our parents. In another place, Jesus says that if you hate someone, that's as bad as committing the sin of murder. So clearly, Jesus is not encouraging you to hate your family in that way. Rather, this is an idiom, a way of speaking that says that you love something so much, you prefer something so much, that all of your other loves, all of your other preferences are like hatred in comparison. So it still begs the question, isn't God unfair? Isn't this still unfair for God to choose some people and not all people? And Paul answers that question at the end of verse 14. He says, by no means. It's not. And here's why. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. In other words, is salvation based on merit or is salvation based on mercy? If salvation's based on mercy, then it's not an obligation. Mercy can never be an obligation. So, so we can't say that it is not fair that God shows mercy to who he shows mercy to because God doesn't owe it to anyone. Think about it like this. Justice means giving someone the judgment that they deserve. That's what justice is. Mercy, on the other hand, means not giving someone the judgment they deserve. And grace means giving someone a gift that they don't deserve. So salvation is by justice, not by mercy. It's by grace. And by definition, mercy and grace, nobody is owed mercy. Nobody is owed grace. Think about it like this. Imagine a, a wealthy person. And that wealthy person decides to do something nice. And they decide to sponsor 20 low-income kids. And they're going to pay all of their college tuition. Could somebody rightly come to them and say, hey, well, it's not fair because there are hundreds of thousands of low-income people out there who, who need college, but you're only paying for 20. No, of course it's. What they did was pure generosity. It was pure mercy. They didn't owe it to anyone to do it, but they chose to do it anyway. In other words, it wasn't an obligation. It was pure generosity. And so you can't accuse a person like that of being unfair. See, we know this. This is what we learned in Romans. The wages of sin is death. So if we want to talk about fair, that's what's fair. The real shock is not that God extends his mercy to some. The real shock is that God extends his mercy to anyone. So because salvation is by mercy and grace, because it's not deserved, because it's not owed to us, none of us can say that God is unfair in choosing some people to be recipients of his mercy. But the question that people often ask is this, well, what if I'm not chosen? What if I'm not chosen, right? Like, how do I know? How do I know if I'm chosen or not? My answer to that is always this. I ask the person who asked that question, I say, look, do you want to believe in Jesus? Do you want to receive God's grace and forgiveness and eternal life? Do you want to walk with God and follow him? And if the answer is yes, then do it. Just do it. No matter who you are, you can be saved. Come and be a child of God today by putting your faith in Jesus. And maybe you would say, well, then if I do that, does that mean that I chose God or does it mean that God chose me? And my answer would be yes, that's exactly what it means. Now you get it. It's both of those things. Think about it like this. It's like there's a door. 
You walk up to the door, and on the front of the door is a sign that says, let anyone who thirsts enter. Let anyone who wants to come enter in. But once you walk through that door, you turn around, and you look at the other side of the door, and it says, chosen before the foundation of the world. Now, maybe you say, I can't really wrap my mind around that. I, I don't get it. Well, that's okay. See? See, what, what in the world ever made you think that you were going to be able to completely understand everything that God does and everything that, that all of God's ways? Of course you can't. Of course I can't. Now, maybe there's someone on the other hand who would say, well, you know, you asked that question. Do I want to follow Jesus? No, I don't. And that leads to our third honest question about God. So honest question number three. If God is sovereign, then how can he hold people accountable for their actions. If God is sovereign, how can you hold people accountable for their actions? So in verses 17 and 18, Paul talks about Pharaoh. So what he's doing is he's going all the way back to the book of Exodus. You remember the story, right? Like Charlton Heston, Moses, let my people go, burning bush, plagues, you know, Passover, Red Sea crossing, all that stuff. And so Paul's bringing us back to that scene. He says, remember Pharaoh. He's an example of this relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Because there in the book of Exodus, we're told that on the one hand, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then on the other hand, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And so God told Pharaoh that he was going to be, the reason he was punishing Pharaoh, God said, was because Pharaoh was opposing the people of God. Now, here's the thing. Don't think that Pharaoh was like a nice guy who just wanted to do the right thing, but God wouldn't let him because God made him bad so that God could punish him. No, Pharaoh was a legitimately bad dude. Look at his story. He's enslaving the Jews. He's drowning babies in the river. Like, this is a bad person, right? And Pharaoh was super stubborn. On many occasions, people had come and said, hey, these are the people of God. You can't be doing this. Let them go. And Pharaoh was like, no way. And so what we see is that with God hardening Pharaoh, God is giving him over to his own stubbornness, to his own sin, to his own hard-heartedness. In Romans chapter 1, verse 24, we read that. That at a point, God says, I'm giving you over to what you want. And, and so that's what we see with Pharaoh. God gave him over to his stubbornness, his hard-heartedness, and God hardened his heart. So in verse 19, Paul addresses a question that many people commonly ask. You will say to me then, why does God still find fault? Who can resist his will? In other words, if God is sovereign, then how can we be held accountable for anything we do? And here's the very important principle. God's plan never takes away from human responsibility. So God's plan never takes away from our responsibility. Verse 20, Paul says, it is disrespectful to even ask this question because what you're insinuating is that your bad behavior, your bad decisions, your sins are not your fault, they're God's fault. Like you're trying to put that on him and Paul's saying, no, that's not how it works. God's plan doesn't take away our responsibility. See, sometimes we like to go to one of these two extremes. On the one extreme, some people will say, well, God is sovereign and he has his plans. Therefore, I don't have responsibility for any of my actions. God does whatever he wants. Therefore, if I do something stupid, well, I guess it was God's will and because God's in control of everything. Now, on the other hand, you have people who say, I'm in charge of my own destiny. I'm captain of the ship. God's along for the ride. He's just a spectator. I do whatever I want. And God says, no. The truth is God is sovereign and he has a plan and we are held responsible for our actions. In verse 20 through 23, he makes this point again with an analogy. He says, God is the potter, we are the clay. Because God made us, he has ownership rights over us. See, we're not in a place to sit in judgment over him and his decisions or to tell him that what he does is okay and what he does is not okay. 
Rather, he is the one who sits in judgment over us. Verse 22 is important. It says this, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In other words, it isn't God who makes people evil. God is the author of salvation. We are the authors of destruction. So it isn't God who makes people evil, but it says there that God bears with evil people. In other words, God never gives anyone quite what they deserve. God's plan doesn't negate our responsibility. If someone is lost, the blame is theirs. If, if someone is saved, it is because of God's mercy and grace. D. James Kennedy was a pastor, and he explained it this way. He said, imagine a scene. There are five people who are planning to rob a bank. Now, each of these people are people you know them, and, and you look at them, and you find out about it, and you plead with them, and you beg them not to rob that bank. But finally, they push past you. They push you out of the way, and they, they go in to rob, rob the bank. But as they're going, you tackle one of them, and, and you wrestle him to the ground. The others, though, go ahead. They rob the bank. Someone's killed. Someone's captured. These people get arrested. They get convicted. They ultimately get put to death. Now, the one man who was not involved with the robbery, because you tackled him, he doesn't get sent to the gas chamber or whatever, the uh, electric chair, right? He goes free. Now, will, whose fault was it that the other men got convicted and died? Well, it was their own. But this other man who's walking around free, can he say, well, it was because I'm, I'm such a good person, I have such a good heart that I'm now a free man? No, of course, the only reason that he's free is because I restrained him, right? In the same way, we bear the responsibility for our guilt, but God gets the glory for salvation. And so that brings up our, our third and final point, we'll conclude with this, why God is beyond fair and worthy of worship. So in verses 24 through 26, Paul quotes from the prophet Hosea. Hosea talked about how there would be a time when non-Jews, Gentiles, would be included in the chosen people of God. Then in verse 27, Paul quotes from Isaiah the prophet, who himself said that not all Israel, in the sense of not all ethnically Jewish people, would be saved, but only a remnant, he called it, would be saved. So these two quotations from Hosea and Isaiah, what they do, their purpose is to show us that what Paul said earlier is, is always what the Bible has taught, that not everyone who's of Jewish descent is part of God's chosen people. And this is how we make sense of the fact that despite all the Old Testament stuff about Israel, some Jewish people reject Jesus, and a whole bunch of non-Jewish people are now part of God's chosen people. And it finishes in verse 29 with this quotation from Isaiah, and here's what it says, if it were not for the mercy of God, then we would have all been in the same boat as Sodom and Gomorrah. In other words, if God just gave us what we deserved, then we'd all receive judgment. See, the message of the gospel is that God has not just been fair. He's gone beyond fairness. He's been more than fair. See, grace and mercy aren't unfair. They're beyond fairness, right? They're a step beyond giving someone what they deserve to where you give them what they don't deserve. And that's what God has done to us. And that's the reason we worship him. That's the reason we honor him. And it's the reason why we give our lives to him. So in conclusion, I'll just say this. If there are two things I want you to take away from today, here's what they are. I realize this is, this is a heady section, a lot of theology here, but it's important because it helps us understand the Old Testament. But two takeaways I want you to take away from today. Number one, remember this. God has a plan. 
He's working out his plan. He has a plan not just for the world at large. He even has a plan for you specifically. So whatever it is that you're stressing over and anxious about today, I want you to remember this. God has a good plan and he's working it out and you can trust in his word and trust in his goodness. And the second thing I want you to remember is this. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 says this. Let us therefore make our calling and election sure. In other words, let's be sure about it, that we are truly called and elected. How do you do that? How can you be sure that God has called you and elected you to be part of his chosen people? Well, here's how you can be sure. Do this. Put your faith in Jesus Christ today. Embrace the gospel. Rather than trusting in yourself, trust in him and what he did for you. Now, maybe you've never done that before. I want to encourage you, don't leave here today without doing that today. Or maybe you've done it a lot of times before in your life. Well, today's a great day to do it again, to trust in Jesus and receive the gospel again. So as we do that, let's sing praise to him in this final song. Lord, as we consider these things, a lot of them are beyond wrapping our minds around. And we just want to take your word at face value for what it says. Lord, we want to honor you as the one whose ways are above our ways. And your ways are beyond even our full comprehension. But Lord, we thank you that you are good. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, if we come to you today and we receive the gospel, Lord, we can be saved. And so thank you, Lord, for this good promise that you've given us. Lord, I pray for anybody here today. I pray for everybody here today, Lord, that this morning we would receive your grace towards us. Thank you, Lord, that it is, it is all your work, that you have rescued us and saved us. We're thankful for that, Lord. We need it. And so, Lord, this morning we receive your grace. We give honor to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. 